at the end of our time together this morning, we'll be taking communion, so be preparing your hearts for that. Um, but last Sunday, I apologize for not having a, a very Christmassy message. We were wrapping up our series on fear and courage, and uh, this week we are going to jump into Christmas, and I'm ready. I've got my green sweater on. Let's do it. Okay. And we're going to be this more, spending time this morning in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. You can turn with me in your Bibles, Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, where we find these uh, very familiar lines. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In the inn. I'm sorry, not in the end. Not having a good mastery of English language is a real problem for me in my job. These old familiar verses, uh, which are familiar to you if, if you've grown up in the faith and have been a part of the Christmas story within the context of Christianity, these lines are, are not new to us, but they really, I think, serve to communicate three things about how the Christmas story unfolded, and as we'll see, all three of them are meant to highlight the awesome sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? I think that word sovereign is one we tend to throw around within Christianity, uh, but maybe don't always have a great understanding of what it means. By sovereign, I mean two things. One, God exists in perfect freedom. He exercises control and dominion over all things. And second, he himself is controlled by nothing. He has both the right and the means as God to do whatever he wills according to his good pleasure. And nobody and nothing can limit, thwart, or even delay the doing of his will. He is supreme in power and authority. There are no limiting factors to his rule or his agency. This is what it means to describe God as sovereign. He controls all things, and he himself is controlled by nothing. And I believe that these familiar lines in the midst of our much-beloved Christmas story exist to confront us with how perfectly free and in control God is, but also to confront us with the surprising things that God, in his perfect sovereign freedom, chose for himself on that first Christmas. Let's first list the three things that these verses tell us about the Christmas story, and then let's see how they point us to that awesome and, I would say, surprising sovereignty of God. First, Luke is going to be very careful. He's a historian as well as a doctor, and he starts his gospel account by saying, I I talked to everybody I could find. I'm laying out a very orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. 
And he's very careful at the beginning of the Christmas story to tell us the precise historical and geographic context for these events. So that's the first thing that we're told about the Christmas story. And then second, Luke will allude to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming Messiah by making it explicitly clear that the birth of Jesus occurred in the city of David, Bethlehem, and that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. So that's the second thing. He wants us to know that this happened in a way that fulfilled prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And then third, Luke will highlight the unusual and humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. No room at the inn, laid in a manger. These are three things that exist within these opening verses of the Christmas story that Luke wants you to know, the historical and geographic context, fulfillment of prophecy, and that the circumstances surrounding this birth are frankly really weird, very strange. First, let's talk about this. Verses 1 through 4, he's going to talk about the historical and geographic context of this thing. He says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, this block of Scripture begins, interestingly, in verse 1, by invoking the name of Caesar Augustus in Rome, whose very name, which he gave himself, by the way, (laughs) means great and magnificent. How would you guys like it if I changed my name to Great and Magnificent? You guys now must call me that. I imagine you guys would call me other things behind my back, probably to my face. So it begins with Caesar Augustus, Great and Magnificent. And it ends in verse 7 by speaking of a baby laid in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So we begin with this display of self-promotion and prideful hubris, a man ruling over other men, and we end with a picture of self-sacrificing humility, God the creator of men, putting himself in a position of humble service to men. This is striking, this, this contrast. And these kind of contrasts are woven throughout the Christmas story. In verses 1 and 2, Luke lists well-known historical figures such as Caesar Augustus in Rome and Quirinius in Syria. Both guys have Wikipedia pages if you want to check them out. They're real historical figures. You can look them up in your Encyclopedia Britannica. And in verse 4, he lists place names such as Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, and Bethlehem that would have been as well-known to his original audience as Bangor, Millinocket, New England, to you and me. We know that Augustus was a real emperor. Quirinius was a real governor. And that all those places that Luke listed were real places that you can still find on a map today. It's noteworthy that that the Christmas story does not begin with once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away. 
That is the stereotypically vague, non-specific language of fairy tales. In fact, when Luke first wrote these famous words, Augustus and Quirinius would have existed within the living memory of his audience. I suppose it would have been like if I said that such and such an event happened in Augusta during the Kennedy administration. Many of you were alive for that time and are familiar with that place. And that's how it would have landed on the ears of Luke's first audience. He wants his readers to know that Jesus is not the stuff of fable and mythology. I think some people might be tempted to put this story in that category. And I'm sure, frankly, many people do. Especially because the claims that are attached to this story, virgin birth, prophecies, angelic visitation, supernatural happenings, a savior for the entire world, not to mention the mystery of God becoming a man, fully God, fully man, without becoming less of either, well, it all just seems so fantastical. But Luke begins with the language of chronological historicity and geographic specificity in order to remove this account, as amazing and as improbable as it may seem in the minds of some, from that realm of make-believe, and he wants to place it firmly in the realm of reality. Every word of these verses drip with an earnestness on the part of Luke to convince and convey that these events happened in a real place, at a real time, to real human beings. And because this was all very real, it cannot be, should not be, ignored. If these claims are true, well, that changes everything. And what he's very earnestly doing at the outset here is establishing that this did not happen long, long ago in a kingdom far, far away. This happened in Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus. However, I think beyond the mere historicity of the Christmas story, there is the amazing truth here that Caesar Augustus, as large as he must have loomed in the minds of the people who lived in that day, and I'm sure as large as he loomed in his own ego, having named himself Magnificent, he's really a bit player in the unfolding drama of God's redemptive plan. Augustus imagines himself to be masterfully in control of the known world, but he is himself being used as a means to an end by a God who is truly in control. Augustus was the most powerful, the most central person of his time, but really and truly, guys, he is a bit player in the story that transcends time, the story that we're all living in, and whose main hero at the center of it all is Jesus. I mean, have you ever felt small and insignificant? How many billions of people exist on the face of the earth today? How powerless do you feel personally to affect any change? 
against the great political, cultural, and economic forces that are playing out in the world right now. We can quickly become overcome with feelings of helplessness. And if you sometimes feel that way, just kind of caught up and borne along like so much flotsam and jetsam in the current of time, (laughs) you're acted upon more than you're acting. If you sometimes feel this way, take heart from the incredible display of sovereignty that we see in the opening words of our block of scripture for this morning. God put it in the heart of Caesar to order a census that requires each person to go to their hometown to be counted, and he did, it, he did all of this, not in his own mind, but in fact, in order to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that the prophecy of the Old Testament could be fulfilled. It reminds me of Proverbs 21.1, where it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Caesar Augustus imagines himself to be godlike in sovereignty himself, but he is a tool in the hand of God. His heart is a stream of water, and he turns it wherever he will. The Christmas story points us to the awesome sovereignty of God over world events. Caesar Augustus, of course, did a lot of noteworthy things. You can look up his Wikipedia page. It's awesome. But arguably, the most important and most enduring thing that he contributed to the world was moving two poor Jewish teenagers 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's not in his Wikipedia page, (laughs) but it ought to be. It's his most significant achievement. It's what he did. I wonder if we could see things from God's superior vantage point today. What world leaders, in their proclamations and dictates, decisions and initiatives, are inadvertently advancing God's purposes right now, moving God's people into position? How many thugs in China have put religious leaders in prison, and that's right where God wanted them? How many? I wonder. It's happening all over the world. People think that they're acting against God, when in fact God is redeeming their actions for his great eternal purposes. In these days when we feel so out of control, the Christmas story points us to the reality that God is perfectly sovereign and in control, and that although we might be tempted to feel powerless. We are, in fact, following the one who is sovereign over all of these things. His purposes are advancing right now. This brings us to the second thing that we see in the Christmas story that points us to this great and awesome sovereignty of God. Uh, God actually says in advance, he always does this, He always tells his people in advance what he's going to do. And years before Jesus was born at Bethlehem, God, through his prophets, began saying that this was going to happen and precisely how it was going to happen. In Micah 5, 2 through 4, he says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In 2 Samuel 7, God said to the great King David, who of course also hailed from Bethlehem, that's his city, it's the city of David, he promised him in 2 Samuel 7 that he was going to bring a ruler from his lineage who would reign forever in righteousness. This is the Davidic covenant. You can find that in 2 Samuel 7. And this covenant would be reaffirmed through his prophets down through the years. Isaiah said this, speaking of that covenant, "'For to us a child is born, to us a son is given.'" And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One of the reasons why I love to point out at Christmas time the prophetic underpinnings of Jesus' birth, that well in advance, God said this is going to come to pass, is because he's still doing it right now. He has told us as his people, even now, what he will do in the future. And just as that first Christmas was the culmination of a lot of long waiting anticipation. We also live in such days, still awaiting what God has promised to do. And it's wonderful for, it's wonderful for us to rest our hearts on the way He has kept His promises in the past, because it helps us get more excited about what He has promised to do but is not yet fully realized even today. This is the season of Advent, that's another one of those Christian-y sounding words that you don't really hear too much outside of Christianity. But the word Advent means an arrival, especially one that is momentous and has been awaited. The first Advent, which we celebrate at Christmas time, is when Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, came to earth as a little baby on that first Christmas. Uh, the days of his earthly ministry are faithfully recorded for us in the gospel accounts in your Bible, in which all the prophecies surrounding the Messiah were fulfilled in him, and of course, he performed many miracles. And today we live in the days between the first and the second coming of Jesus. In the first advent, he came as a savior, a sacrificial lamb, but in the second Advent, he will return as a lion, a judge, and a king to rule. The Christian life is marked always by looking back and looking forward. I think it would be fair to say that the incentive and the power to live a Christian life, pleasing to God, comes from two directions. It comes from looking back with gratitude to the grace of God that appeared in Jesus Christ at his first coming, that first Christmas. When he purchased our redemption on the cross, and it comes also from looking forward with hope to the glory of God that will appear at the second coming when he completes our redemption. 
It's looking back to Jesus, His words and example. He showed us the way, and now as Christians, we walk in the light of His example. But we also remember that after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again, He appeared to His disciples, and then He ascended into heaven. His disciples watched as He ascended, and after He had disappeared from sight, two angels appeared to them and said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?' Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, We are members of the Advent Christian uh, network of churches. And of course, that word Advent means that we are adventual in focus. We were born out of a great movement that said Jesus is coming back again and we need to get ready. Not only that, but we need to help others who are not ready get right with Jesus before he returns. We have, as a people, had a great history of emphasizing the second coming of Jesus, the Advent. And Christmas is always a great time for me to reflect on this, that he came in such a perfect way. He kept all his promises, and he's made some glorious promises to us that we still await, but could happen before the end of this service. I would love it if this was, we never even got to Christmas, (laughs) as strange as that may seem. Just as God acted with sovereignty to put all things into place for the first coming of Jesus into the world, so he is moving today, making all things ready for the coming of Jesus, preparing us, his people, sending us out into the harvest. And the question is, are you ready for that amazing day personally? Have you put your trust in Jesus for salvation? On the day of his coming, it will be like in the days of Noah, which is to say there will only be those who are inside the ark and those who are outside. There will be only those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation and only those who remain outside of Jesus. And on that day, my hope and my prayer, if you're listening to this right now, is that you will be found in Christ. You will have put your trust in him for salvation. This is the great Christmas gift that God gave to the world. Jesus came wrapped in Mary. (laughs) And he was born as a gift, a gift of life for all those who would put their trust in him. Jesus died on the cross, taking our penalties onto himself and giving us his reward. And that can be yours. You can be saved today. Would love to talk to you about that if you want to following the service. Come grab me, you'd make my year. I'd love to talk to you about it. Just as the shepherds were caught off guard by a bright light in heavenly heralds, Luke 17, 24 says concerning the second coming of Jesus. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. It's going to burst into the normalcy of our lives with such extraordinary, unexpected majesty, suddenness. The shepherds were just out in a -a work-a-day night. It was normal when all of a sudden they were ambushed by divinity. (laughs) And I believe the second coming of Jesus will be much like that. And this brings us to our last point this morning that I want to emphasize The last thing I think Luke emphasizes in our verses for this morning, which is really the surprising sovereignty of God. 
It's not just that he's sovereign, but in his sovereignty, what he chooses for himself. Let me ask you, what would you do if you were perfectly sovereign? (laughs) If you could do anything, you were controlled by nothing, and you controlled all things, what would you use that for? It's amazing to me what Jesus used his sovereignty to do. There are a lot of strange details in the Christmas story. And when I was a kid, they seemed even stranger to me. I grew up in the church. I grew up in Sunday school. I had a mom and dad, and I was sharing this at soccer last night. I, uh, my mom and dad, really from a very early age, I was very blessed and fortunate. They told me the truth. They told me biblical truths uh, from a very young age. And because I knew so many Bible stories, the details of the Christmas story were always really weird to me. They really were. I knew, for example, that when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and they got short on food, God miraculously caused manna to fall from heaven and flocks of quail to blow into their camp. When they got thirsty, Moses struck a rock and water poured out. Throughout the Bible, God is depicted as a provider God who gives his people what they need. So it was strange to me, very strange that when Mary and Joseph and Mary, pregnant with God himself, show up in Bethlehem, that they couldn't find a place to stay? Where was the God of manna and quail and water from the rock when Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem? If God had wanted to, he could have made a way for them to be put up in the finest room in town. But he didn't. At a minimum, I thought he could have provided a proper crib for the baby Jesus, a feeding trough. But he didn't, and that was all very confusing to me. Until one day, as an adult, it occurred to me that the events unfolded as they did precisely because a sovereign God wanted them that way. It was perfect. It was to be preferred. It was excellent. But in some ways, this makes the details even stranger. If God did these things on purpose, then we wonder why exactly. What's the point? For example, we all know that Mary and Joseph couldn't find lodging when they got to Bethlehem and that they would have to seek shelter in some sort of stable or cave where animals were kept. But I think some people, when they encounter that detail in the story, think to themselves, ah, man, too bad for Mary and Joseph. That's a bummer (laughs) that it didn't work out. But again, that was exactly what God planned. That was plan A. And God planned it so that Jesus' first bed would be a feeding trough. Somehow that was perfect and excellent. And the angels, when they were sent to announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds, and we'll get to this next week, they show up to a group of rough, poor, probably illiterate guys working a minimum wage job. And not only did, is that who the angels announced the birth to, but those, those are the only people that they announced the birth to. They don't bother to tell the high priest in Jerusalem (laughs) or the king or Emperor 
Caesar Augustus, they go to a bunch of guys having their cigarette break, as it were, behind their job, and they tell them that. This is really weird, guys. Did they get the wrong address? Did they go to the wrong place? All of those details, nobody making reservations at the inn, a feeding trough for a crib, shepherds being the first and only audience for the angels to announce the birth. If we didn't know that it was all exactly what God had planned, it would all sound, sound like a bunch of mistakes, missteps. But because it was exactly what God planned, we should try to understand why it came about in just exactly this way. I don't have a lot of time here. Let me just wrap it up this way. Three times, let's focus on the manger for a second. Luke brings this up. In fact, in Luke 2, he mentions the manger three times. He says it here in the verses we just read. He's going to announce it to the shepherds. This word manger keeps showing up. The angel makes a point of emphasizing it. And the sense I get is that the manger is a really important detail with significant meaning. God wants you to know about this manger. In John 3.8, it says this, The reason the Son of God appeared, that's Christmas, was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin entered the world through pride, first in Satan, then in Adam. The story of the fall is a story of pride-filled creatures, created beings, trying to seize the place of the Creator, puffed up, full of pride, first Satan, then Adam. Pride was at the root of it all. All the sin and misery, the disease, the death, the cancer, the car accidents, the wars, the horrible calamities that have plagued humanity all down through the ages, it was all born of pride a grasping desire for the place of God. And so it should not surprise us that just as pride was at the root of all this misery, humility would be the fix. Think of it. In the fall, mere creatures tried to seize the place of the Creator But here at the beginning of the Christmas story, we see the Creator willingly taking the place of a created being. He assumes the place of a creature. He set aside His divine nature and becomes like one of us, but somehow lower. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, speaks about this amazing miracle at the heart of Christmas. When it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like Jesus. And now I'll tell you how, who Jesus is, what he's like. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 8, it says he humbled himself. And isn't it amazing? Don't you fall even more in love with our amazing God 
that he, in his perfect sovereign freedom, would choose a manger. (laughs) How contrary this is to all the inclinations of pride in its use of sovereignty. How contrary is humble Jesus in his sovereignty to the sovereign Caesar Augustus. Does he look like me, though? (laughs) This is the question. Do I in any way resemble Jesus? We as Jesus followers know that we are sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus. This is what it is to be a disciple. And at Christmas time, how can we not be confronted with the surprising sovereignty of God? That he and his freedom chose this, chose to seek his joy in your joy, to lay down his life for you. And the challenge before me is, am I going to be like him this Christmas in my life? We say we're followers of Jesus, and here in the Christmas story, he comes into very clear focus for us. He's the target at which we're aiming our lives. And it's helpful for me to see him in this moment, in light of all he truly is. Because in Jesus' choosing of the manger, we see a rebuke to the pride that still exists in my own heart. It's a rebuke to the pride of Satan. It's a rebuke to the whole order of this fallen world. How wonderfully different Jesus is. And how wonderfully different the church is to be in the midst of all of this.